what we might do, we might as well just, I reckon we just rip in, start cracking along and Maddie will join us. And then I'll be able to chop this up into some really cool reels as well. And if any of this content you would like for yourself, feel free. I'll drop you a box with all like, with all the edits and everything like that too. So if you ever want to, you know, talk about it or, or post it around, you're more than welcome to any yeah, of this. If you send me something, I'll definitely post it. Cause then hopefully that gets you more traffic or whatever yeah. it is. That can be yeah. helpful. So. Absolutely. That would be great. Do you know how to connect the Bluetooth? Um, yes, yeah, so it's just last time. Yeah, so it's just up here. Hey, we could use the bearded person, bearded anyway. Yeah, we're good. Um, it was uh, Rode Caster Pro. Yeah, yeah, cool. cool. Oh, it was just that, it wasn't any that, other settings. No, oh, that's it. Good. Awesome. That's All us. Right, you guys should be able to. Oh, wicked. Hey, man. <laughs> Hello. Let's do it. Hey. Uh, we don't need the marks, do we? Oh, we uh, yeah. It'll, it'll <laughs> all oh, hey, Bill. Hey, sorry about my um time confusion. It's all right, man. Where do we? Oh, have we been on? Oh, kind of in here yet. Yeah, that's all right, man. How you been? Been good. Things have been going real good. Busy, yeah. but good. Yeah, that's good, man. Yeah, um, we'll we'll probably line up and can we we can line up another one as well, though, can't we? Um, do another podcast soon. Yeah, yeah, we can do one where we can have like the full hour. Yeah, sweet man. Yeah, that's cool. I got so much. I mean, dying to talk to you. I gave James a list of people I wanted to speak to, and like you were the top of my list. You and Rich, you and Rich Kreider. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I especially want to talk to you about our um protein because you're the protein expert in the whole world. Are you? Will you be at ISSN this year? Oh yeah. From. There we go. Oh. All righty. You. So, I don't know how to, we don't fit on the camera. No, we'll be on this one. Oh, okay. We're yeah, cool. So Bill will be on that one. We'll be yep. on the, that one there. Oh, okay. Cool. All right. Awesome. And do you want me to wear a headphone or do you hear me well? Because I, I have a headset. No, you're good, mate. I can hear you good, actually. Can you hear us okay? Yeah. Yeah, sweet. Cool. I think we're good. Can you? Yeah. You can hear me okay? I can hear you All right. great. Sweet. So, Bill, whatever time that you have to leave by, just say, "Hey, guys, I got to go," and then we can always, yeah. you know, reconvene. But I'm sure we'll get some some really cool snippets um, from this, and we can ask some cool questions. But um, at any point you need to leave, you can uh, just let us know, and we can uh, wrap it up. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Let's like the, take about 20 minutes. Now, one thing, my view of you has you both cut off, but that won't be. Th that's that's nah, fine. That's totally okay. Yeah. We'll we'll be uh, taking it from the camera behind. And I'll then... do this every once in a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's and okay. And then big. Should I back up or is this? Nah, is this... nah, that's great. Just no, like... you're a genius, Bill. That's the whole point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, no, that's cool. Mate, well, thanks so much. I'll just do a little intro. So, so guys, welcome back to episode number 20 of the Fiber Performance Podcast. We have a really special guest on. Um, Maddie Leg and I have wanted to have Bill on for such a long time, and this has been about two months in the workings, but Matt has spoken so highly of Bill over the last probably half a year and has been telling me all the cool things he's been researching. So, Bill, thank you so much for coming on uh, the Fiber Performance Podcast. Yeah, thank you for the invitation for having me on. Great. Awesome. Well, I think we'll, we'll rip straight into some cool stuff. Maddie, um, you've been talking about Bill and all the cool stuff that he's been researching over the last however long. Can you tell us a little bit about why you wanted to have Bill come on to the podcast? 
A um, couple of reasons. I've done some podcasts with Bill before, and they're always mind-blowing for me. I love them. Bill, in my opinion, is one of the experts in the world regarding protein um, and how much protein to have at different stages of our life, different um, for different objectives when we're dieting, when we're bulking up, um, when we're trying to lose some weight and that sort of stuff. When you want to talk to someone about grams per kilo body weight and how much protein we need or when do we need it, Bill's the man. So while we've just launched ourselves out a, a plant-based protein, um, what we wanted to do is we get questions all the time from people about why do I need protein? When should I take protein? Um, how much protein do I need? How much protein is too much? So I figured that these are the sort of questions that Bill can pretty well nail as the, the world's expert. Well, and, and that's super interesting because Bill and I just had a conversation before we jumped online and he was asking, so what sports did you do? And I was just like, well, there's this one and this one and this one and this one. So let's just rip right into that, Bill. Uh, in terms of your, in your experience and what you've been looking at, for someone with a diverse background, kind of like myself here, what type of, how much protein, what, do you, what information do you need to know to try and work out what type of protein I would need as an athlete? Yes, I, I like to start with just the philosophy of, of why we need protein. So right. I, I have termed protein as the adaptive nutrient. So for any athlete or anybody that wants to train and they're trying to change their body or enhance their performance, you have, you, you train and that training provides a stimulus for your body. So we fuel that training and for fueling the training, we think of carbs and fats. Those are our fueling nutrients, but protein is unique in that it's the adaptive nutrient. Protein allows your body to adapt to that training stimulus. And it really doesn't matter what, what you're trying to improve. If you're trying to build muscle, protein. You're trying to be more explosive, protein. Stronger, protein. Protein, you know, is that's what that our cells DNA, that's what they will make. So you need to give the body the tools or the materials to be able to form the enzymes, the cellular matrix, the protein, if it's skeletal muscle, all of those, all of those materials to adapt to the stimulus. So we start there. So it's not really, you can have all the carbs and all the fat you want. You're not going to adapt to your training with them. Now they're the best for fueling. And on the on, and related to that, protein's a horrible fueling nutrient. If you had to fuel your exercise with protein, you would be lacking in energy. The body doesn't break it down quickly or efficiently. So starting with that, now where do we want to go from there? From there, that's and that's super interesting in itself. From there, if I was to say, would you be would you be allocating different amounts of protein for someone who is competing in say a powerlifting sport? like powerlifting or Olympic lifting to someone who is in the endurance space doing marathons and long distance Ironman. Are they two different? Do you go about it in two different ways? I, I tend not to differentiate much. And again, that goes back to the philosophy that I just shared. Both of those athletes are clearly on opposite ends of the performance spectrum, the endurance extreme and the power or strength extreme. But regardless, they both train and train seriously because they want their bodies to adapt. So in, from that sense, they both need protein and, and more than what the typical medical establishment would suggest we need. Now, if I were going to say they need the same, 
I would think a strength-based athlete would 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 use could use more since that's more of a strength-based adaptation, but they still both need it. Um, and I personally, not based on research, just my my own uh, recommendation, if I were to work with those athletes, I would probably start them on about the same amount. And that would be somewhere in the range of 1.6 up to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight. And one thing about our endurance athlete, they are um, traditionally, they their thinking has been almost too obsessed with carbohydrates. Now, of course, they need carbohydrates, um, depending on the, some of them can get away depending on what type of endurance athlete they are with a, with a ketogenic diet, but it had to be very low intensity. But those, those athletes tend to not value protein as much as what they should. So I would, I would actually spend more time on educating and following up if I were counseling that type of athlete who's an endurance athlete, because they need to recover. I mean, they have a ton of volume in their training and they need to recover from that. Yeah. And this has been a question that has been put to us a couple of times in the past. Let's say that you have someone who's say, uh, you know, going off the one, the 1.6 to 2.2 per kilo of body weight. Let's say you had someone who was say 130 kilos, 140 kilos, but they weren't, they weren't muscular. Say they were fat. Would you still have them on that range as well if they were looking to decrease weight, but they still wanted to do some weight training at the same time, but they wanted to, you know, obviously lose a bit of fat. Would you still be putting them on say that 1.6 or would it be more based around lean body mass? So I I would not have that type of individual. If somebody is if somebody has obesity or if they're overweight, what I tend to do is say, what is your goal weight? And we would base the protein on their goal body weight or what you just said, a very common approach. As long as if they know their their lean body mass, you could also base it on that. So does what I just said there doesn't necessarily apply to that population. And that's probably something I should have said earlier. The type of athletes athletes I work with are almost all physique athletes or serious fitness enthusiasts, people who are pretty serious. So I don't typically work with an obese or overweight population. Yeah, that's super fascinating. It's one one thing that I've always wanted to find out about because people ask me all the time. I'm just like, well, it really kind of it kind of depends on, I guess, the population, right? That's mm. that's super interesting. Um, and what about the timing? The, yeah. the other question we get asked all the time is, when's the, what's the best time to take protein? And does it matter? Is there a is there a maximal dose that you can have at any one time? I remember it used to be always what thirty grams of protein was a was a story at one stage. How 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 about that? So l- let me address your your timing question because I I know that every athlete wants to know that. So <laughs> if we can separate the the a physique athlete, somebody who's trying to build muscle, look like look like they're very lean, have low levels of body fat. And separate that from somebody like James, who actually needs to perform for their career, or they're an actually they're an athlete. I guess I would, I guess I'm saying bodybuilders aren't athletes. <laughs> uh, for the bodybuilder or the physique-minded individual, the timing isn't all that important. What's most important is your total daily protein intake, and then dividing that approximately over three to five protein feedings per day. And ideally, those are approximately equal protein boluses throughout the day. Now, for the athlete, we have limited data, 
that it is more important that they get their protein and carbs. So the research that I'm relying on as I'm talking about this, that's that research gives them protein and carbs immediately after their training or their competition. And that data suggests that over time, they actually have significant improvements in performance. So it seems like if you're just resistance training, the need to do it immediately after is not essential. If you're an athlete and your goal is some type of athletic performance, it seems like it's more important to get it immediately after. Now, that being said, I don't differentiate. I always I, I instruct athletes or anybody that I'm working with, you're going to eat protein anyway. So let's go ahead and plan for one of them to be your in post workout, because otherwise you, you might be going out of your way to not get it after a workout. So not as important for a physique athlete, more important for a sport athlete. And then let's go back into the, the question of how much can our body take at one time? How much can we ingest or utilize? And like, like you, Matt, I, I've, I've often heard 20 or 30 grams. And that's, that's, not, that's not true. The, I, I like to answer it kind of like a, kind of like a jerk. Like if you eat 1,000 grams, your body's going to digest it. So it's, it's not that your body can't digest it. What I think most people mean when they say there's a limit to how much we can take in they're referring to something, um, the, the outcome of muscle protein synthesis. So that's a cellular um, response or a cellular process where you're building up skeletal protein in your muscles. Now, there is a limit on how much you can ingest in one meal and get that outcome. And that the way that that works is on a per meal basis or a per protein feeding basis, the more and more you take, the more and more you ingest. So as you go from 20 to 30 grams to 40 grams to 50 to 80 to 100 grams, you get, I mean, just you get less and less of a benefit with the more you take. But there's still an added benefit. But after 30, 40, 50 grams, depending on the size of the person, the benefit becomes fairly negligible. So just think of a, of a curve that gets flatter and flatter. So 20 is a lot better than 10. 30 is better than 20. 40 might be a little bit better than 30. 50 is marginally better. So you see what I'm saying? So there is a limit at some point on muscle protein synthesis. A lot of people though fail to recognize protein also has an effect on muscle protein breakdown and that would suppress muscle protein breakdown. So there's that benefit as well which a lot of people don't even consider. So that's why when I give protein recommendations up to about 2.2 grams per kg, that seems pretty high to a lot of people. And I just say, well, don't just focus on protein, muscle protein synthesis. We also have to appreciate muscle protein breakdown. But I also say for people that struggle to get that much in a day, I say, well, remember, if you can get 1.6 or 1.7, you're still getting a lot of the benefit. Getting Going to 2.2, the benefit is not as much. But where we really see the best um, adaptations is when somebody starts off low and we increase it to even up to 1.6. I've seen body transformations with just that change. That is super cool. And I think I'm probably about around the 1.6, 1.7 mark myself on average. 
Well, one thing I was going to ask is protein sources. What have you found in your experience are, you know, just the best protein sources just for getting, you know, a great combination of amino acids that we need to do this type of work, protein synthesis, enzymes, that type of stuff? So typically you, you want to make sure that the, the protein source that you have, that it has enough leucine. So that's one of the essential amino acids. Leucine is, there's approximately 20 amino acids. And out of the 20, about half of them, eight or nine of them are considered essential amino acids, which means we have to get them from, from, our, from the diet, from our food sources. Leucine is unique among all of the other amino acids. That is the one that has a, that basically turns on, it's like a light switch. It literally turns on the muscle protein synthetic pathway. And again, that it's very unique to leucine. The other amino acids don't have that. So if you look at it from that perspective, you want to, you, you choose your sources that have high leucine. Now, traditionally that, that have been animal sources tend to be the highest in leucine. But if you choose a plant-based or vegetable-based uh, protein source, what we've learned is you might just need a little bit more total protein to meet this, what we call this leucine threshold. So animal sources, you get more protein with, you get more leucine, more essential amino acids with less volume. Let's just say a scoop with our, yeah, let's just sit for an argument here. One scoop, or if you're getting plant-based protein, maybe you need 1.2 scoops to get the same amount of leucine in that, in that bolus or the same amount of all of the essential amino acids. Interesting. I love that. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was going to ask is, again, calories in, calories out. Um, we talk about that for, for fat loss or any form of adaptation, whether you want to get bigger or smaller. Um, Bill does some crazy quizzes and stuff. If you, you have to, anyone here, follow Bill on social media. He does these quizzes all the time. And I get most of them wrong. Um, just so if you're reading <laughs> the quizzes. and uh, Yeah. <laughs> they're like trick questions, I'm sure of it. Um, one of the things I noticed, it's almost like calories in and calories out determines if you're going to lose weight. You've got to be in that calorie deficit, except for protein. Was there, There's a little bit of a trick there. You, I've noticed some of the themes there that they can have a little bit extra protein. doesn't seem to have the same effect as other macronutrients with it while they're in a fat loss journey. Yeah, so my take on this, which is, I, I guess some people would call it a, a, a little bit controversial, but I, I make the statement that you're not going to get fat eating protein. It's, it's, it's very hard. I'm not aware of any study where subjects, when they're fed extra protein, and that means protein alone. So we're not talking about protein plus carbs plus fat. When you have a resistance trained subject, and I think there's three studies that I'm, that I'm referring to here. One of them is my own, one of my own studies, but when they overfeed resistance training people on protein, they do not get fat. Two things happen. They either maintain their current level of body fat, or in some cases, they actually lose body fat, which is odd because, again, we're taught that if you increase calories, you should gain body weight. And likewise, when you decrease calories, you, you should lose body weight. And by the way, I'm, I'm an advocate of the what we would call the energy balance model for fat loss. So calories in, calories out. But there is a unique nutrient of protein that just messes things up a little bit. It doesn't make it so cut and dry. 
And and why do you think that is, Bill? Is that part of the fact that maybe that particular calorie might modify the calorie out? Does it do something to increase calorie burn, or is it? What what are your theories around why that happens? So I, what I think is happening um, is protein is the only macronutrient that has nitrogen. So it ha- we have these nitrogen bonds, and as we digest protein, these the the peptide bonds they're just they're hard to break. It takes energy, more energy for the body to break apart these nitrogen bonds, and that releases more energy. Plus, muscle protein synthesis, which we've been talking a lot about. That's a very that's a very energetic energetically demanding process. So if you're feeding yourself protein, one we're expending energy to break it down to digest and absorb it. Two, we're we're going to have an acute bout of muscle protein synthesis that also causes um, an increase in energy expenditure. So those two things alone, I think, are the 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 likely reasons for why protein tends to um, just be more energetically demanding on our body, cut, takes more calories to, to change. Um, I'll tell you about one study. Um, they took, um, what were they? They were females who were, oh, normal weight obesity. So these were females that were not, their body weights were not high, but they had very high levels of body fat. Uh, some people call it skinny fat. And what they did with these females, they divided them into two groups and in the one group, they just increased their protein, um, increased protein, reduced carbs by the same amount, didn't have them diet at all, didn't increase their calories, didn't decrease their calories. The other group kept eating low protein. And what happened was they significantly increased their, their skeletal muscle mass and decreased their fat mass. And they, they, didn't, they weren't exercising. So just changing the protein composition of their diet. I think they were going from like 1.1 to 1.8. That's all it took. Um, And that's a, that's a pretty powerful outcome. Um, And I do want to go back calories in calories out. I'm, I'm doing some, some work on that right now. Uh, That works. It's it. I, that's not to say that some people do struggle with weight loss when they're controlling their calories, but by far that's the exception. Um, that is not the rule. You take a hundred people and, and reduce their calories. Ninety nine of them are going to lose body fat. That's so interesting. Have you noticed or have you seen? And I know that you're uh, running a little bit pressed for time. Um, have you noticed any really adverse effects from overconsuming protein? Something that is maybe bad for us long term. Is it you know does it wreak havoc anywhere else if we overconsume protein? Let's say we went up to say three grams per kilo of lean body mass? I'm, well, I'll answer that by saying I'm not aware of any research um, reporting that. Um, I know there's been two studies where they had 3.3 grams per kg for months. Um, and another study, uh, 4.4 grams per kg for months. In both studies, there was blood work, clinical, clinical markers of health, no adverse effects. Um, now, I do appreciate the question, and and here's what I say, because obviously my protein recommendations tend to be a little higher than others, and the last thing I want to do is is give somebody advice that's potentially harmful, that that I would feel horrible about that. So one thing that that I do is in my classes, when I tell my students, hey, here's my protein recommendation, but on the first day of of my class, 
whether it's a sports nutrition class or a weight management class, I say, if you can bring me one study that reports an unhealthy outcome from high protein intakes in healthy people, so we're not talking about people with end-stage renal disease or metabolic disease. So in healthy people eating high-protein diets, you're done for the semester. You get an A, and you're you're you know you've earned an A by giving me that data. And no student in ten years since I've been doing that has been able to do that. Now there are some correlation studies, um, but that's not what I mean. Um, as you guys know, you can <laughs> you, <laughs> correlation. You can make, you can correlate anything. To, to make your case. So I do, I make it be an intervention-based study because the last thing I want to do is, is, is recommend something that could be harmful for people. And I need to mention this again. My recommendations are for healthy individuals um, and particularly people that are exercising. That is super fascinating. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it cool. is. Mate, how are you going for time? <laughs> you, uh, about 10 more minutes, if that's all right. Oh, great. Oh, because I've got another question. Um, Don, I hit you with all these questions. Um, you mentioned earlier calories in, calories out again. The calorie expenditure, some of the, now correct me with these stats because they just come off the top of my head and you're much better at memorizing these things than my, myself. But the actual calorie expenditure from um, exercise in, in the average population, something like zero to five percent or something. But then the thermic effects of foods, where you mentioned before the ability to, digest the protein and stuff there's a lot of calories what's the is it 20 to 30 percent of your potential daily calorie burn can be um the thermic effects of foods by your food choices and how hard they are to digest and break down yes yep that's exactly right so um that's funny you said i'm good with numbers I, i'm horrible at memorizing numbers but i do remember <laughs> oh. these numbers um your thermic effect of fat is two percent your thermic effect of carbs is about seven and your thermic effect of proteins about 25 Let's just break, let's just explain what that means. If I were to have a hundred calories of fat, so let's say um, some butter, I just get some butter and I start eating butter, and it's a hundred calories. It takes the body some energy to digest and absorb that butter, but fat is very low. It only takes like two extra calories. So if I eat a hundred calories worth of fat, it will take two calories of energy to digest and absorb it. So I'm really only getting a net increase of 98 calories. Now let's look at carbs. Let's say it's hundred calories of carbs, pasta. I, if I eat hundred calories, it's going to take seven of those calories to digest and absorb it. Now protein, if I have hundred calories of protein, about 25 of those calories are needed in the form of energy to digest and absorb it, which we mentioned earlier. It goes back to that nitrogen bond and muscle protein synthesis. Like you, there's a large metabolic advantage or a thermic effect of protein that's significantly greater than than um, carbs and fat, which goes back to 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 our argument that it's, it's a lot harder to overeat on protein and gain body fat as compared to fat and carbs. Very easy to do with fat. That is, yeah, that's super. Yeah. I didn't know, I didn't know but that at all. Even but. the exercise bit, you know, the fact across the average, I think it's like zero because some people do no exercise up to like five or 9% or something like that. I think that it's capped out around there, you know, for some of these elite athletes, it's still only that exercise that they're putting in is only contributing that much of the potential shift in calorie burn. So, which gives people 
out there, the general population, a massive opportunity to actually manipulate the calories from their macronutrients when they want to create a calorie deficit or a calorie excess. Yeah. And yeah. have you seen any studies on um, the amount of energy required? Is it more like Matt was saying, you know, 10% or less probably goes towards the exercise. Some of it goes towards actually digesting the, the nutrients. But in terms of recovery, is, is more of the calorie burn in a person from the recovery aspects from that 10% or less exercise that we're doing, just sitting back, you know, sitting on the couch trying to recover from the afterburn? The afterburn, yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that, is, have, do you know many stats on that? What type of requirements are there or is, it, is that the highest point? Well, I, your recovery in terms of um, energy recovery is really going to be dependent on the, the intensity and the duration of your exercise bout. So that's going to be highly variable from one person to another. Now, mm-hmm. CrossFitter, that, that would be pretty extreme. I mean, that's that's very intense for for depending on the event for long periods of time. So there's going to be quite a lot of um, what we call just post-exercise oxygen consumption or just the amount of calories you're burning for recovery during that phase. Yeah, interesting. And I wanted to touch on, and I love this topic so much, and Matt's fired me up about this topic so much more, creatine. I want to know a little bit more about the creatine aspect. And for a lot of people, especially when they ask me as a a plant-based athlete myself, um, is, you know, what does my supplement regime look like? And I always recommend getting in some creatine, especially being plant-based. Like it's always if you're going to add one thing in, probably add this in. It's probably going to do you some benefit. Have you noticed anything that is just you know astronomically cool about creatine that we may not know about, or something that you can reinforce that is a really cool thing about creatine monohydrate or any other form? Yeah. Well, give me one second. You guys know I'm traveling tonight, so <laughs> here's let's here's, go. Here's my creatine that I'm traveling with me tonight, so I don't try, I don't leave home without it. Um, I'll say this, uh, um, that may be new. So creatine, I give it to my children, um, in their fruit smoothies. They don't know they're getting it, but it's tasteless. Um, we know that it increases strength. We know that it increases muscle mass unless you're a non-responder. So if if you're a type one muscle fiber dominant athlete, like a marathon runner, you don't get much benefit from it. But, um, and the area that I don't, that I'm not an expert in but the health benefits are becoming just just uh, mind-boggling. So stroke recovery, um, prevention of concussions. Um, there's something called a get-up-and-go test for elderly for frail elderly people. Um, autism. There's some research in autism. So there's all of these clinical health benefits of a supplement that I just looked at it for its sports neutrino for its sports performance outcomes. So again, I can't sit here and talk about this study and that study other than to say creatine is so much more valuable. And again, I feel it, you might think that I'm paid by the creatine industry. I'm not, I don't, I don't make any money from it, but it's, it's one of those supplements that's relatively cheap. I know the price has gone up recently um, with supply chain issues, but it's, it's not just a performance supplement. It is also a health supplement. Wow. And would, is there any particular form, I guess, maybe are we talking just a creatine monohydrate or is there something else that you know about that's, you know? No, uh, creatine monohydrate, it's um, like 99% sat- uh, bioavailable. So 
anybody who claims that another form is better, it's, it's hard to improve on 99% bioavailability. Um, you, if you drink, if you consume too much, um, you, you, you're urinated out. So it's, there, there's a limit on that. So I just take, um, a teaspoon almost every day. Um, and I just, you know, I'll do that until, until I'm dead. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm about the same. And, and with stability of creatine, I mean, it's, it's got to be in a powder and added and then drunk pretty much straight away. You can't go and put it into a, a drink and have it sit there. It does convert through and. Correct. And yes. then, yeah. Yep. Yeah. When yeah. I was in grad school, I was um, in a study that ended up in litigation because they were, they, they put their creatine in a liquid medium and then, you know, made all these claims, but there was no creatine in it by, by the time the consumer consumed it. Yeah, and on the on the blood test when they do with the doctors and they they measure this thing called creatine and um and a lot of people think that creatine causes kidney problems because it's they confuse it with the word creatinine. So did you want to explain to people that, that that's pretty much just what happens when you put it into the liquid, isn't it? Yeah, it's just a it's a normal byproduct, a metabolite of of creatine. Um, and like you said, a, a lot of people they'll they'll um, or even even um. A lot. If you exercise intensely, you, you you'll you'll have a lot of something called creatine kinase in your blood, which is an enzyme. So that's indicative of a heart attack in some people. But it's just natural. Again, I'm just going to pick on CrossFit athletes. They train so intensely, yeah. their creatine kinase levels, which is an enzyme, it leaks from the from the skeletal muscle. That can be high in the blood. Now, again, that can be dangerously high, but. Um, a, phys- a, a a medical professional who's not trained may look at that or creatinine and not know, well, this is a little bit more natural for people who are exercising or, or um, supplementing with creatine. And Hey, I, oh, I do that to run it. Um, yeah, now nah, you're good, mate. That's perfect. Well, let's wrap it up. Well, Bill, thank you so much for coming on. Maddie and I have just probably, Oh, I've had my mind blown. This is probably a lot of what Matt has talked about with you in the past, but we really appreciate you coming on and uh, we'd love to have you back on to, to talk shop and especially about all the cool things that are coming up for you too. I know there's a, a few things in the works there, so that'd be really good to, you know, readdress and get back to. Yes. Yeah. And if you guys can remind me, email me and I'll send you some of my issues of my research review just so you can take a look at it. Great. Oh, yeah. We'd love that. Awesome. Oh, well, yeah. mate, thanks so much for coming on and safe travels. Yes, thank you guys. Thanks for bearing Thanks with me. Thanks for the time. All good. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks, buddy. See ya. Bye. Bye. See ya. Thanks, Bill. You're a legend. I can love everything you do, man. <laughs> Thanks, man. There so you go. I know you can't hold up, but man, thank you so much, and we'll definitely catch up with you soon. All right. Sounds good. See ya. <laughs> See you, buddy. Bye. Genius, that guy, eh? But the way he just knows it, like, you can just ask him anything, and he knows it. <laughs>